0: Um, I might just take another moment to pray, if that's all right. Uh, Father, we thank you for the the, the enormous um, power that's in your word. Uh, we thank you that we only become soul and light in the world as pip reminded us, as we uh, internalise your heart and intention as you dwell in us and indeed shine through us. And so we we would just pray, Lord, we would dare to ask that this morning might be more than just listening to another sermon, but that by your spirit you would work in our hearts and our minds, to change us, and we ask that together, in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Um, Have you ever noticed how naturally we humans tend to create divisions? Uh, We we love, don't we, to create um, categories and groups and boundaries and partitions of all different types, so that in almost any situation we end up thinking in terms of us and them. The world is full of these sorts of divisions. We create divisions by nationality. There's us Aussies and those Kiwis or those Pommies or add in pretty much any other national group you'd like to. We tragically create divisions by skin colour and race. We create divisions according to income and by vocation, by church and denomination uh, and by gender. We divide up countries. I mean, in the 20th century, we saw the division of so many different places. There was the establishment of North and South Korea. Um, Vietnam and Ireland were divided up. There was East and West Germany. I remember once reading that when the uh, demilitarized zone was created to separate North and South Korea in 1953, Um, something like 10 million families were separated and in the majority of cases contact has never been re-established by those families but it's always been like this in the ancient world, the Greeks used to divide up the world into two groups as well us and them, there were the Greeks and the barbarians if you could speak Greek, that qualified you to be amongst the civilised people everybody else was a barbarian and I think the the origins of that word barbarian come very much from the idea of babbling, of, of unsophisticated speech. Today we would say blah, 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 which oh, sounds a lot like me preaching, doesn't it? I just thought, anyway, many would say uh, it's these sorts of divisions and this sort of divisive thinking that creates one of, if not the most serious problem in our world. And if humanity is ever to have a future, then we must learn to deal with these sorts of divisions, to transcend these divisions and somehow become one as a human race. As my children used to say when they were younger, when I was upset about something, Dad, you need to build a bridge and get over it. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to do, we need to build bridges and get over them. Now it goes without saying that the issues of difference and division are enormous causes of, of violence in our world, of hatred in our world, isolation and discrimination. But I'm not suggesting that divisions per se are always evil in any absolute sense. I've cited some negative examples of divisions in the human race, but not all divisions are inherently bad, and I want you to hear that. Let me try and explain what I mean. Many divisions in this world are created by boundaries. And some boundaries are absolutely necessary for the healthy functioning of life in society. What are some examples of necessary boundaries? Well, a fence, I think, is a boundary that keeps children in their yard, stops them running out on the busy road and being hit by a car. So the division of your yard from the busy road, I think we would probably all agree is quite a good thing. Doors, walls, windows are all boundaries that will keep weather and insects and predators and thieves out and protect our belongings as well as the people that we love. Markings on the road are boundaries that allow thousands of cars to move from one place to another every day with a minimum of carnage. The word no is a boundary that stops people from doing things that they shouldn't. Skin Is a boundary that keeps some really important things inside our bodies and other unhealthy things outside our bodies. And in all of these cases, a boundary might be seen as a mechanism that allows something to be safely and properly defined. So, boundaries and divisions, uh, boundaries and the divisions that they create are not bad per se. One other thought to share with you before we dive into the text. Some of the boundaries that create helpful divisions we might think of as being humanly created. You know, the fence, the wall of the house, the line on the road, these are all humanly created divisions. But other boundaries, other helpful boundaries, I think logically fall into the category of the natural world, like our skin, like the need to stop and sleep. You know, there are, there are um, boundaries to our capacity to stay awake, dividing wakefulness from slumber. And it seems quite reasonable, I think, to think of these boundaries and divisions as in some way God created, part of the natural order. Now, the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, and we looked at the first half of chapter 2 last week, talks at length about two divisions that God has created by putting certain boundaries in place. The first of those divisions, though designed for the good of humanity, ended up going terribly wrong because of the way that people reacted to it. So God created a second division, and this time, with us in mind, He made it foolproof. What on earth am I talking about? Well, the first of those divinely inspired divisions is the division between good and evil, between right and wrong, between sin and wholeness seems to me that atonement is an increasingly controversial theological term these days, which is a shame because it has a fabulous meaning and I think it embodies concepts that really are quite natural for us. I mean, if I broke something that belonged to you and that was precious to you, then I would quite naturally try to make up for that. That would include an apology, it would include some sort of restitution, you know, I would I would try and buy you another one of whatever it was I broke. And that process of trying to make up for things is what atonement is all about. The dictionary defines atonement as to make amends for. But there's something else in the word that we also need to notice that I think gives us an important insight into its meaning, emphasising the intended result of atonement. So I'm just going to do a little spelling lesson with you. How do you spell the word atonement? A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T Now just put a couple of dashes in there. A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T At-one-ment. At-one-ment. To be at one with things. That's what atonement does. It facilitates reconciliation where there's previously been division. It allows us to be at one with God, to be at one with others, to be at one with ourselves. Atonement, in other words, is about finding wholeness in a world that's been carved up by sin. Because that's what sin does. It divides things that aren't supposed to be divided. A lie wrongly divides the truth. A hurtful word wrongly divides friendship. Theft wrongly divides property. Sexual infidelity wrongly divides relationships. Murder wrongly divides life from death. Any sin that we commit wrongly divides us, it separates us from a holy God. And the God-ordained boundary that defines the provision between right and wrong is a positive division that protects and seeks to keep whole things that aren't supposed to be divided. So, how do we know, though, where the boundary is between right and wrong? Between good and evil? The boundary is defined by law. And as the people of God embraced the law of God in the Old Testament, and we find that law described, of course, in the first five books of the, the Old the Old Testament, the uh, the Pentateuch, as I'm sure those in um, uh, the introductory Old Testament class are discovering, made up of 603 rules and regulations divided into 10 major ones and 603 minor ones, that law was supposed to act as a boundary, a moral boundary for God's people, for their own good, for their own protection. It was designed to preserve their identity as the people of God. Now, when God chose the people of Israel to be his special people, and gave them the law to help define them, he did that choosing with a particular purpose in mind, and it was a missionary purpose. They were supposed to demonstrate, to model for all of the other nations, how good it would be to have the living God as their God. And so that the other nations would then desire to have God as their God as well. When Abraham receives his promises in Genesis 12, God says, I will bless you, Abraham, I will make your name great, not so you can be cool or great, but so that the nations will be blessed through you. See, when God blesses, there's supposed to be a domino effect, with one blessing leading to another and another and another. Now, the theory was good. It had enormous potential, but unfortunately, it didn't work because of the way things got divided. Now, if you're in a family... Um, and just say you've got two kids, and you've got a bag of lollies, and it's not too big a bag, so they can eat the whole bag. There's two ways that you can equally divide the lollies amongst the children. Either you can do the division yourself, count them out, one for you, one for you, one for you, one for you, or you can give the bag to one child, and then tell them to go and fairly share the lollies with the other child. And I would contend that the second has far more potential for chaos and pain, <laughs> but it also has more potential to grow the character of the children and to ultimately be a blessing to your family. I mean if you want to see a donut perfectly cut in half you know how to do that don't you you tell one child to divide the donut and then the other child gets the first pick of the two halves and it guarantees that that first child will exactly cut cut the donut in half but rather than sharing God's blessings with others God's people instead concluded that God had blessed them because they were special rather than because they were supposed to pass that blessing on. And so, like kids with a handful of lollies, they took God's blessings and tried to clutch them to themselves, and you know what happens, you've got a handful of chocolate, and you hold it tightly to yourself, you end up with melted chocolate. All over you, you lose the blessing that you've been given. So this clutching of God's blessings to themselves developed an us-and-them mentality for the people of God in the Old Testament. Perhaps more acute, uh, and and us and them more acute than any that the world has ever seen. So profound was this sense of, of difference that developed between the Jews, those who had the law and God's blessing, and the Gentiles, those who didn't, that by New Testament times, if a strictly Orthodox Jew even brushed the cloak of a Gentile in the marketplace, they would consider themselves ritually unclean And in an extreme case, they would perhaps even go and burn that garment because it had been defiled in some way. But not only did the Jews consider themselves morally superior to everyone else, that is, to the Gentiles, but the everyone else, the Gentiles, responded to their self-righteousness with loathing and hatred. And I would dare say that The divide between Jew and Gentile is perhaps one of the deepest and longest lasting divisions that's ever been there in the entire human race. And if that seems like a bold statement, then I just invite you to think of it in terms of the sustained intensity of anti-Semitism that we've seen throughout the history of the world, right from Bible times to the present day. Whether you think that division is still a problem or not, it's certainly true that it was in the world of the Ephesians. The Jew-Gentile divide was one of, if not the most significant divisions those people encountered. And you have to remember also that in the very early days of the church, um, people were thinking about that relationship between Jew and Gentile. Now, Ephesus, where the letter to the Ephesians was written, uh, wasn't in Israel, or it was written to, rather, um, but there was a significant Jewish population there. So the church was likely made up of people who, many people who were Jews, who believed that their Messiah had come in the person of Jesus, but there were probably also many Gentiles, people whose lives had been transformed by following Jesus, but who were still wondering, were they really proper Christians because they hadn't first been Jews? Did that make them second-rate Christians? Would they ever be full members of God's family the way the Jews seemed to be? Could they ever fully transcend that Jewish Gentile division? And so the text says to those Gentiles in verse 11, "So then remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, the uncircumcision, uh, called the uncircumcision by those who are the circumcision. So there's names, difference in names between the Jews and the Gentiles. A physical circumcision made by flesh uh, made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, the text says to them, before you were in Christ, there were two words that characterised you, you were aliens and you were atheists. A couple of years ago, I remember chatting to someone who works at Milpera High School. I don't know if you've ever encountered that particular place. It's a special school at Chelma that caters for children who have been international refugees, some of whom have been displaced um, by violence and political upheaval in some of the, the, the uh, most difficult places in the world, often against their wills, and they've been forced to flee one country and they've come here to Australia, usually as refugees. Now, the person, the teacher I was talking to, uh, was describing some of the enormous challenges that her students face. Simple things that we take for granted, such as catching a bus or a train, is just totally overwhelming for these students. Uh, buying things at a supermarket involves a set of uh, skills that they've just never acquired. Uh, even relating to their peers doesn't come easily when they've come out of a context of families and tribes warring against one another. So in that situation, what does the teacher do? Well, they forget any curriculum they might have and they just teach those kids the most basic skills they need in order to function in their new environment. They are aliens and strangers in a foreign land and the text says to these Gentiles, that's what you were like too. The things of God were completely foreign to you. You were on the outside and you needed someone to come and help you make the transition. But not only were you aliens, you were also atheists. Now, of course, you would know that the word theos in Greek is the word for God. So an atheos or an atheist is not so much someone who is against God, but technically someone who is without God. Mm. And when you are without God, it seems to be the case that often people end up without hope as well. Several years ago, I read a book called The Future of Atheism. And the first sort of section of that book uh, is the transcript of a public dialogue that took place between Daniel Dennett, who's a prominent atheist and has written a number of books trying to disprove the existence of God, and Alistair McGrath, who at the time held the chair of historical theology at Oxford University. And at the end of the dialogue, um, questions are taken from the floor. And they're all recorded with their responses there in the text. And someone asked Daniel Dennett, the atheist, to try and imagine a thousand years into the future and describe what he believed the world would look like if atheism became the dominant worldview for the majority of people on the planet. And Dennett replied, he thought that was an irrelevant question. He answered that long before a thousand years were up. He believed humankind will have destroyed the planet and themselves. The entire human race would be gone. You see, when you are without God, so often it follows that you end up being without hope. And to those who are both atheists and aliens, those who are outside and without God, Ephesians says, But now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I wonder if you realise the significance of that little word, but. It's only a tiny word, but it makes all the difference. Imagine you're trapped in a war-torn country, surrounded by bloodshed and violence, and you're trying desperately to get your family out, to to escape and to flee to a safer place. And you've tried every option that you possibly can, and finally you're standing at at a border checkpoint and there are guards opposite you with loaded machine guns refusing to let you pass. You're negotiating with all your strength, trying everything you can to change their mind, And the guard says to you, there is no way that we can let you through. But, and then suddenly that one little word, but, changes everything. But, but, what what do you mean, but? Is there a chance we can get through? What do we have to do? Suddenly there's hope. But, says the text, you were aliens, you were far away, but you've now been brought near. You were strangers who didn't fit in. But now you've been made to belong. So what's going on? How has this happened? What's created this but? Well, the text says, For he, that is Jesus, is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups, that is both the Jews and the Gentiles, into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. Now that reference to a dividing wall is probably a reference to a marble barrier that existed in the Jewish temple, which created an outer court in the temple and that outer court was the only place where a Gentile was allowed to go. Set into this barrier at regular intervals was an inscription and they've actually excavated one of these inscriptions that tells Gentiles if they proceed any further, they are liable to instant death. That barrier was very symbolic of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles at that time. Rita Snowden, the author, tells a true story from the Second World War. In France, some Allied soldiers took a, um, a dead comrade to a Roman Catholic church cemetery to have him buried. But the priest, very apologetically, told them that if he wasn't a Roman Catholic, the person who had died, then he wasn't permitted to be buried there. And he wasn't Catholic. And so his friends ended up burying him just outside the fence of the churchyard. The next day they came back and... Uh, They were about to pay their last respects before they they moved on, these friends. But they could find no trace of the grave. There was no evidence in the soil having been touched at all. And the priest then came up and told them what had happened. He was so ashamed and so deeply troubled um, that he had followed the church's law and not permitting the soldier to find rest in fitting surroundings. That during the night he had risen early... um, And with his own hands moved the fence so that the yard now included the body of this soldier who had died liberating France. But, Ephesians says, now in Christ God has not just removed the barrier that separates Jew from Gentile, he's destroyed it. He's abolished it by satisfying the requirements of the law, the thing that created that initial boundary through his own flesh as though the text is saying his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, in which he put to death their hostility. One new humanity in place of the two has been created. Now, um, in Greek, there are two words, or at least two words for new, uh, neos and kainos. Uh, neos means new in point of time. So if I go to a bookstore and buy a a Neos Bible, it might have only just been printed and sold to me, so there's a sense in which it's new, but there are actually thousands of Bibles already in existence. So it's new but not original. Kynos, however, means new in point of quality. Something is kinos when it's completely different from anything that existed before. And the text says God is creating for himself a kinos humanity. It's not that he's turning us Gentiles into Jews or turning the Jews into Gentiles. Rather, he's doing something completely new. The church father Chrysostom once commented on this by saying, it says, though one melts down a statue of silver and one melts down a statue of lead, and when you mix them together, they produce a statue of gold. And what all this means in practical terms for us today is simply that when it comes to God, You and I are no longer on the outside. Rather, we're on the inside. And you know, if I had to make an honest estimation of the student issues that I used to deal with when I worked as a school chaplain, there is one issue that stands out easily, and it's the issue of exclusion. Mm -hmm. There are few things more soul-destroying for a young person than to feel left out of a group, to be made to feel on the outer with their friends, Every school, doesn't it, has its in-group. And we use that phrase. We call them the in-group. The power of an in-group is, is a fearsome thing, especially, I think, in a girls' school, because girls are so relational. So that students who felt excluded consistently would not that infrequently resort to things like self-mutilation and self-harm and other extreme behaviours to try and cope with the pain of rejection. And if you've spent your life feeling that you don't fit in, if you have always felt on the outer, not good enough, not cool enough, not attractive enough, not socially competent enough, then I need to tell you that the one place where you will always belong is when you are in Christ. No longer is God's division in the world between Jew and Gentile, rather, it is between those who are in Christ and those who are not. And again, that's a positive division created by God, absolutely necessary to allow us to become whole, for we cannot find wholeness outside of Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is an awful thing. Uh, It's an awful feeling to be left out to be treated as a stranger to be on the outer and Lord in the way things used to be that's what we actually chose for ourselves when we refused to recognise and obey the boundary of your law a boundary that you created for our own good and safety we, we all fell short of that and were set to experience the consequences of it but Jesus you stepped forward and you satisfied that law, so that in you we could be brought near to the Father, so that we could find a place to belong. And we would simply pray this morning that you would help each of us in our own hearts, not just to know intellectually in our heads, but to know in our hearts the reality of that, so that amongst us there is a a real and living faith that allows people to know and experience your presence in our midst. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.